This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 100. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, I want to start off this episode with a big thank you. Thank you to all of you for your listenership and support for Planet Microcap Podcast. It really has meant a lot to me since day one. Most of you have been here and listened to every episode. And even to our new listeners that have come on board to start listening to the podcast, I really do appreciate each and every one of you for coming on here and listening uh, to what I have to say and also my guests. Um, and, and really back in July 2015, I, I was a frustrated investor that wanted to get better. And thanks to the amazing guests that we've had on here, they've helped people like me become the, a better investor and, and hopefully the best investor that I could be. You know, So I'd really like to also give a heartfelt thank you to all of my guests who have selflessly shared their time and expertise. It's been four plus years now and, and I feel like our best interviews and insights are ahead of us. And with that, I'd like to share with you a new interview with Ian Castle, co-founder of microcapclub.com, my first ever guest on Planet Microcap, as he talks about his journey since that first interview we did together. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 100 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Ian Castle. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going in 2020? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today is a very, very special guest. He was actually my guest for episode one of the Planet Microcap podcast. He is the founder and editor of microcapclub.com, the inimitable Ian Castle. Ian, welcome back. Thanks, Bobby. It's great to be back. I think it's been 
what, four years since episode one? It's been four years. And you know what? In that time, I learned how to say inimitable. That was only the third <laughs> time I've ever said that. It's a big word. <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of syllables, eyes, you know, they're all over the place. But, you know, Ian, I, I wanted to say before we got started, just really thank you so much for your support of this podcast. You know, you've been, you know, very helpful, both, you know, in front of the screen and behind the scenes with helping me and getting some guests and, and really just so, so thankful for all your help with, with this endeavor. So, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure that you knew and, and I'm very thankful for that. No, thank you for what you do for the space. I mean, I enjoy listening to the podcast. I think there's very few venues too that that kind of bring emerging managers, uh, specifically in microcap, give them some needed exposure. And I think you do a great job with that as well. So I, I appreciate uh, you shining a positive light on this ecosystem. Thank, thank you. And then you know, all right, before we uh, everybody clicks away to uh, you know because we're heaping so much praise on each other. Uh, let's get started here. You know, as you said, last time you were on the podcast was back in, in July, 2015, but, but first, before we get into an update and, you know, how things may have changed in your life and investing style, you know, let's give everybody a brief background as to who you are and, and how you got started with microcap club. Sure. Um, so my abbreviated background was I got interested in, in investing when I was a teenager uh, when I was a junior in high school, my parents had saved for me an amount of capital. They said, you know, this is going to be what you're going to get for college. This is all you're going to get. And so they gave me that choice at that point in time to, to, you know, where I wanted to go. And so I ended up, this was 1997. That sounds like a long, long time ago, which it was. 1997, technology bubble, bull market era. You know, everybody was investing in tech. And uh, I got interested in investing back then, invested into some small cap technology companies that uh, ultimately went up three or four or five X, you know, because that's, you could have threw a dart and had those types of returns during that time period. Uh, but when that bubble collapsed, you know, all those investments I was in got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, I, and maybe it was because those investments turned into micro cap, a couple of them. Uh, but I started looking at smaller and smaller equities at that point in time. And I ended up um, getting into micro cap investing, which would have been, you know, when I was in maybe a sophomore in college. So, you know, that type of time frame. And so really from there, you know, just kind of learned the, the ropes of microcap investing from losing my money and gaining it back, losing money. You know, I had a few mentors uh, back in mid 2000s. Everybody was on stock message boards because you know, these small microcaps are mainly owned by retail investors. And those retail investors tended to, you know, have an audience on public message boards. And so kind of built a reputation on there and uh, went from undergrad into grad school and, uh, you know, formed my own little consulting company for a little while to kind of buy my time to become a full-time private investor, uh, which I did in late 2008 uh, during the economic crisis. You know, that's when I kind of cut the cord of income, decided to go full-time. You know, obviously, looking back, it looks like the best time ever, but it was a scary time, you know, to make that decision. I mean, so, what a, what a yeah. what timing <laughs> still. I mean, I've heard you do, yeah. listen, I've, I've interviewed you, I heard your interview with Tobias and, and you know, a few other interviews you do. And each time you, you say that point, I'm always just like, man, what, what a jump at that time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, ultimately, you know, the 2008 became a full-time private investor, had, a, had my own blog for a while where I would talk about what I liked and why I've always been very, really concentrated as an investor in four or five names at that point in time. And so it was just kind of talking about those four or five names, kind of built up an audience on there, um, almost too much of an audience and decided to shut it down because uh, everything I was posted on would move the markets and it wasn't the type of exposure I wanted to get. So kind of shut that down for a while and, and started thinking about, 
you know, be, I, I love talking about what I own and, and the microcaps that I'm looking at. And I was always interested in what other experienced microcap investors liked and why as well. And so in 2011, launched Microcap Club, sort of a private community of microcap investors. Uh, so really what we do is just share what we like and why. And so that launched in 2011. Today, we have uh, around 200 members. Uh, we have a few hundred subscribers as well from around the world. And it's really just meant to be an idea generator for microcap investing. It's meant to find your peers, you know, people just like you. You can collaborate on due diligence into companies. And you know, since 2011, we have 650 microcap companies profiled on Microcap Club, which is a big swath of companies. And uh, we also have an annual event we put on in Chicago every year called the Microcap Leadership Summit, which we can get into later. Uh, but you know, that's really kind of points me up to where we were at 2015 when we had our first initial episode one of, of this podcast. Oh yeah, and you know, I, before before we get into that update, because you know, Microcap Club is now a known entity. I'd say even amongst institutions, amongst issuers, you know, they, every, a good amount of these companies now know about this club and and whatnot. You know, what one question I always get asked actually by issuers and CEOs sometimes it's like, well, what kind of companies are talked about in here? You know, what, what it seems to be their focus. I mean, you've been running this since the beginning, you started this, what would you say tends to be the, if you had to kind of paint it with a, a broad stroke, you know, what, what are some of the types of companies that usually get written up or talked about on there? You know, I would say it's mainly the smaller half of the microcap ecosystem. That's probably our sweet spot. So sub 150 million market cap. Mm -hmm. We have um, US Canadian microcaps. We're starting to get more into the UK and Australia as well. Um, but it's pr predominantly those geographies and the types of companies can range from, um, from, you know, companies that are growing profitable, you know, great businesses to story stocks, to life science companies, to mining companies. You kind of have every that's scratched on microcap club because really i mean microcap investing is just like kind of small cap mid cap large cap you have all those types of businesses that are smaller right um, and so we, it really is a, a you know a lot of different types of companies but predominantly the smaller half of the microcap ecosystem gotcha all right so now we're going to get into that update um you know uh last time again i had you on july 2015 a lot has changed for you both personally and professionally so let's get that update. What have you been up to since then? Well, I think we did our podcast July of 2015, and I think I had my daughter the month after that. So, uh, so now I have a four-year-old daughter, and now we have a 20-month-old son, Jack, as well. So, you know, so now there's two kids running around the house, so that uh, adds complexity to your schedule and everything like that. But it's been a, a great experience. When you think about microcap investing, if you invest in microcaps, you should be somewhat ready to have children because it's kind of it, it, there's a lot of correlations between young kids and microcaps. You know, it's it's similar to young kids. You don't let your three year old in your house by your, by themselves because they probably burn the house down. You know, it's the same thing with microcap investing. You want you need to watch <laughs> your microcaps closely. Uh, so you know, I I'd like to think that I was prepared for fatherhood, maybe because of microcaps, but maybe that's a stretch. Uh, so I'm now a father. Um, we'll also, let everybody else decide that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, um, in addition, maybe the, the, the other thing is I launched a small investment strategy earlier in 2019, um, it just because I've been asked by investors almost every year, you know, could you help manage some capital? 
uh, in this small microcap ecosystem, and they they wanted some intelligent exposure to this ecosystem. So, um, so maybe two years ago, we started thinking about how to do that, how to structure it correctly, and so launched a, a intelligent fanatics capital management in May of this year, and uh, brought in a few investors into that. So, in addition to my personal investing. Uh, helping manage about uh, 40 other investors right now, uh, navigate them and, and get them exposure into this ecosystem as well. Got it. And and I know you talked a little bit about it on Tobias's podcast as well, but you know, can you give us a little bit of, about the philosophy and the strategy for, I'm um, using your uh, the acronym, IFCM? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the pitch, I don't need to give you the pitch on microcap investing. What I'll do is give you a pitch on why it's hard for people that aren't in microcap to gain exposure to it easily is because, you know, if an outside investor wants to gain exposure to microcap, they're kind of forced to buy the iShares microcap ETF, or they're forced to buy maybe 20 other open-ended funds that are out there. And the issue with that is those funds are predominantly all investing in the larger half of the microcap ecosystem, sort of that 150 million to 300 million plus swatch of market cap. And those are sort of the institutionalized uh, microcaps that are out there. And you can do well in there, uh, but very, there's very few ways for you to gain intelligent exposure into the smaller half of the microcap ecosystem. And why that's important is there's a few studies that were done. In fact, one of our members of Microcap Club looked at all the CSRB data going back to 1926, and the smallest decile of the public markets outperformed all the other deciles. So the smallest decile is sub 114 million. And that outperformed every other market cap decile by a wide, wide margin. And so you have some historical data that backs up that the smaller half is the place to be. And then there's also some white papers you can find from Roger Ibbotson, who's done some work on illiquidity. And to drill down further, he's kind of showed that since 1971, the best place to invest is basically illiquid microcap companies. And so you have this historical evidence that's that's pointing to, hey, you know, the best place to be in the public ecosystem are these small, illiquid public microcap companies. It's just hard to invest in there and not very many active managers do it because it's not a scalable, um, it's not a scalable fund. You can't, you know, put $200 million into easily into the smaller half of the microcap ecosystem and at least, you know, be in 20 or 30 names. It's just right. impossible. So, so, the strategy I launched, it's kind of unique because it's capacity constrained. You know, I went out to um, bring in around $5 million and we hit that in a few months. Um, and, you know, it's not something that I'm actively out there bringing capital in. It's just because it, it sort of ruins the potential for alpha as you bring more and more capital into it. But, um, but that, that's the opportunity set, you know, for IFCM kind of in this smaller realm. And that's why I launched it. Cool. Well, you know, with the launch of IFCM, becoming a father twice over, you know, uh, how would you say that your investment process or your strategy has changed, you know, since even since 2008 and even since 2015, you know, I'm sure you've had a nice evolution since then. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great question. And I've spent some time reflecting on that uh, in a couple of blog posts that I've written maybe in the last 12 months. But you know, when I think about it, I'm definitely more diversified than I was, call it in 2008, 2009, and the years before that. You know, I was historically in three, four, or five companies, you know, which is obviously very concentrated. Um, that's how I kind of grew a net worth up to a size that I could support myself uh, and my family. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I've tended to evolve that instead of having, being in the three to five names, I'm more into that eight to 10 
type companies, which anybody would say is still concentrated, but it's more diversified than how I how I was before. And maybe another way that I've evolved is I think I have a shorter leash for losers in the portfolio. So companies that aren't performing. I think it was Phil Fisher that had a role that he had a three-year role. You know, if he wasn't up on his investment in three years, he would just cut it loose. Mm. And I think that's an interesting way. You can kind of protect yourself from yourself <laughs> a little bit. And, you know, I would say maybe mine's even shorter than that. Maybe it's two years. Um, but I've made some mistakes in the past where I've held on to things too long. And so I think that's where I've evolved is actually having a shorter leash with some of the companies. Mm -hmm. um, maybe another way that that kind of my strategy has changed is, you know, there's been some times where um, I've kind of gotten away from some of the areas where I've made money in the past. And, and you know, maybe the portfolio has gotten a little stale, so to speak. And so I've kind of injected some of my past experience more into it to so where there's there's some different different buckets in the portfolio of companies that I have experience in. Like for example, you know, maybe I have some more like story stock type companies in there. You know, maybe I have some mining related companies in there, which I have some experience there as well. Where, you know, maybe three, four years ago it looked like just a bunch of GARP companies and really no no other way no 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 other optionality there other than those names. And so I've kind of brought those things back into my portfolio or the arsenal that I have. And, you know, maybe the last thing I can think of off the top of my head is, you know, I've, I've started looking internationally mm -hmm. um, outside of just the United States and Canada, I've started looking at the UK, the AIM exchange, started looking at uh, some Australian micro caps as well. And, you know, that's mainly just been through brute force, kind of just going A through Z and trying to find some interesting companies over there. And one of the reasons I did so is because I was, I was stumbling upon companies first in, on the AIM exchange that they're still going public as small companies, which isn't happening as much here in the here, here in the United States. Unfortunately, you know, they're actually bring, I know they're actually bringing companies public, IPOing them on the AIM exchange, doing a ten or twenty million dollar small IPO, and and they're not just all life science companies needing to raise money for a phase one trial. You know, it's they're actually real businesses. You know. And so that attracted me there. And, and some of them that, that they did that in 16, 17, some of them went up 10, 20 X, you know, in the last three or four years. So that kind of caught my attention and it, it made me kind of want to focus over the UK and start to find some, maybe some unique businesses over there and, and also doing the same thing in Australia as well. So I think I've become a little bit more of an international micro cap investor over the last really two, three years more so than I was in the past. I, I you know, so I have a few follow-ups on, on how how you've changed up your style and your strategy. Let's hit on that globalization because we've been seeing the same thing too, you know, kind of seeing that where, you know, there's less quality companies going public earlier in their life cycles here in the U S it's almost kind of forced investors to look abroad. Right. I mean, it was mm -hmm. that kind of the impetus for you. I, I think so. I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. Like in the UK, you, you'll see a small microcap go public. It's a real business. And you'll see like BlackRock be part of the IPO, which is just strange. It's like, where, you, would you would never see How? that in the United States. I just don't understand. You know, it, like, it's something I still don't <laughs> really know why. You know, I, I wish we had that over here. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it just forced me to start looking outside the geography. And I think there's plenty of opportunity here in the United States, even sure. with less companies going public. Uh, you know, and, I don't, and you don't want to get too far out of your 
your, your core competency. But I also think there's a, you know, there's blatant opportunity in other markets and you would be kind of foolish not to at least start to educate yourselves on, on that. Well, on look, well, look, I mean, there's you just three, three regions off the top of my head that are also English speaking regions, you know, you have UK, Australia, Canada. I mean, you know, well, there's a little French up there, but you know, for the most part, English. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, yeah exactly. so, so it's easily accessible. In and, a few of the management, and a few of the management calls I've had with companies abroad, you know, I was the first United States investor that ever reached out to them. You know, it, it kind of gave, it kind of feels like 2012 when very few United States investors would look at Canada, you know, previous to 2012. Mm-hmm. And now everybody in the United States invests in Canadian microcaps, you know, and so everybody so it feels a little, <laughs> yeah, it, pretty much. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 nobody did pre 2012. And then all of a sudden now it's hard to find. I mean, everybody seems to be investing in Canadian microcaps and that's great. Um, but you kind of have that similar type of setup, it feels in some of these other geographies. So it makes it interesting. For sure. I think we can thank our friends at Small Cap Discoveries for uh, helping lead that charge. That's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks to Paul. He's made the, uh, the markets much more efficient up there. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So, so another thing I wanted to hit on that, that you said when you change up your, your strategy a little bit is this idea of having a shorter leash. You know, I, I mean... When when you're looking at a, at a company, you're evaluating it as and wanting it to bring it on into your portfolio. I mean, I'm sure that leash isn't as disciplined as what you know the Phil Fisher. You know, if I don't see it after three years, you know. But at what point in your in your thesis for a company are you telling yourself, okay, is it is it when management continues to tell you that they're going to perform and don't hit those milestones, or is it more like? You know, they do keep saying and doing what they're going to do, but it's just hasn't turned yet. You know, why? You know, what what seems to be that turn for you when you evaluate each company in your portfolio? You know, I, I think it comes back to your first point that you made about when you have a management team that says that something's going to happen or to expect something that never occurs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you just have to have a short leash for people that do a lot of talking and not executing, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think I think that's, that's definitely an area that I, I've – gotten less and less patient with. Um, and, you know, I think it also reflects down into your portfolio sizing. And that's an area we can talk, talk about later as well, you know, is, you know, averaging down into things and, you know, the, that can be a mistake as well. So, so, but, but for me, I definitely have a shorter leash than I used to, mm-hmm. you know, there's plenty of opportunities out there. The, the key to investing is staying in your winners and cutting your losers, you know, and winners, you know, tend to keep executing for a reason. It's because they're good management teams or taking advantage of a market opportunity, whatever they're doing. And, um, you know, I would just rather be in things that are winning instead of companies that are just keep on making excuses. For sure. So my next question is because again, you know, you full-time private investor since 2008, but really in microcaps since the late nineties, um, what, what would, where do you draw the line in attaining information that you need to make an investment decision? You know, I mean, so there's been so many new tools and resources being put out there on, on almost seemingly a daily basis. You know, for you, where, where do you then draw that line? It's a, it's a great topic. And I don't know if you ever read any of the research done by Paul Slavic, Slovic, uh, but anyway, he, he wrote a, he did a study in 1974. He was a psychologist. He was kind of a he was a peer of Daniel Kahneman, so he kind of rubbed shoulders with him. Really smart guy, and he 
he gathered, he did the study where he gathered eight professional horse handicappers. And, you know, these, these handicappers were all seasoned. They were professionals. They all made their living solely from their gambling skills. Um, and Slovak told them to, the tests would consist of really predicting 40 horse races in four consecutive rounds. And each one of these horse handicappers in the first round, he would let them choose five pieces of information. They could choose whatever five they wanted. And the second round, they got, I believe, 20 pieces of information, or no, it was 10 pieces. And then the third round, 20. And then the fourth round, all 40 pieces of information. So that they got more and more information. And what was interesting was after the first round, so each horse handicapper got the five pieces of information they wanted, the first five, their accuracy went up by 17% in their ability to pick the, the winners of the horse, horse races. In the subsequent rounds, when they got more information, they didn't get any better. They actually, they didn't get any better, but their confidence went up two or three X, which led them to want to place bigger bets, even though they really weren't any more accurate. So that it actually ultimately ended up with them losing money, you know? And I think that study is interesting because it can show how dangerous just, you know, and the difference between accuracy and confidence when it comes to investing as well. Um, so when you think about that study and applying it to investing, you know, when you think about those horse handicappers in the first round of that study, when the horse bettors were asked what five pieces of information they wanted, I can guarantee you that those first five pieces of information were the ones that were most important to them out of all those 40 that they could have asked for. And, you know, I think it just shows that kind of the, to pay attention to the four or five things that are important to you as an investor and not get stuck into a lot of the details that you can kind of get into looking at all the minutia about everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, it's important to keep it simple. You know, for me, I, when I look at something, I really kind of apply sort of four filters, if you want to call it that for the way I invest. And it's going to be different for each person. You know, but really, I'm looking when I'm looking at a business, I'm looking for an organization that's showing signs of kind of intelligent fanaticism. You know, a leader that, you know, owns a good piece of the company, you know, has a reasonable salary. You know, when you go visit the company, the employees, you know, tend to look like they like working there. You talk to the employees and there seems to be a good culture there. Um, just a good operator. You know, the second thing I look for is a business that can grow through a recession. You know, especially now that we're in a 10-year sort of bull market, you know, obviously every day that goes by, it's, we're closer to perhaps a recession. Um, and I think it's becoming more important to, you know, think about that and think about what you own and, and making sure you're in businesses that can continue to do well in a neutral to bear market environment. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the second filter. And, you know, the third filter is really having a balance sheet that can weather the storm, you know, in a bad market. Um, so they can act with boldness and maybe acquire a competitor or, or buy back stock, you know, or whatever the case may be. And then the last but not least, I think is, you know, for me, when I look at any investment now, you know, I look at the opportunity as, do I think I can double my money in three years, you know, based on conservative fundamental underpinnings, do I think the stock can double in three years? And so that, you know, that's a 25% Kager doesn't mean I'm going to be right, but that's sort of the, the lens that I look at every investment opportunity. In, and then that gets back to what you're paying the price of that equity. So that's, that's how I kind of just hone in on what's important. And I try not to get distracted by a lot of details that make me feel like I'm getting more confident, but I'm not going to get more accurate. 
Listen, there's only so many uh, video interviews you can watch me do with the CEOs you might be interested in investing in. So I, I get it. Yeah. You know? I, 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 I understand. You know? I, I... <laughs> so what, what would you say has been your biggest mistake you know, in your investing career? I mean, you tell me if you want to go full on investing career or, or since, uh, you know, oh, there's, any there's given been plenty of those. You might have to do a separate podcast if you're my Let's mistakes, go. Let's but, do it. Uh, <laughs> let me think about it. I'm trying to think which one or which area. No, I don't know a few areas. You know, what I found is like successful investing, it's, it's sort of 5% intellect, 95% temperament. And a lot of things can influence your temperament outside of even just the market conditions. I mean, the stock market or the stocks themselves going up or down. You know, things like we talked about before, like uh, position sizing. Uh, I think I think it was Steve Burns who's on Twitter. I don't know if you follow Steve; he's great. Mm-hmm. But he said that you know said something to the effect of the larger your position size, the louder your emotions become. Yeah, and I think there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think so when we're talking about position sizing, I sort of divide position sizing, even that topic, into two camps. You know what what do you make your position size at cost when you initially like something? What, how much are you willing to buy at cost? A uh, percentage of your portfolio or allocation. Um, and it's really a question of investment at cost, not as a percentage of your portfolio, but the real dollars you then deploy into that idea, you know, meaning you might make a position, a 10% position, but if the stock drops 20%, you continue to make it a 10% position, you're averaging down, you know, and so you're still deploying capital into that idea, even though it's still the same allocation. So there's some difference there and I'm getting down the weeds a little bit. I apologize. Let's go. It's all good. But you know, I think it's so I've made mistakes in the past averaging down into positions mm-hmm. and just deploying too much capital into them, even though the position size allocated percentage wise was the same. But I just, you know, kept kept the allocation size the same. And it's, it's much healthier to let a position get bigger by it appreciating in value rather than you just deploying more capital into it. Mm-hmm. And so it's another thing I'm just more conscious about. So so that's one area of my mistakes, letting a position get bigger through that stock getting you know, appreciating rather than me just deploying more capital into it, uh, maybe while it drops. Uh, I'd much rather be adding to things that are going up, believe it or not, which is counterintuitive. But, you know, another area, you know, when I think about it related to focusing too, it, it's kind of related to focusing too little or too much on your investments, you know, kind of gets to the topic we were just talking about before as well. You know, I believe there's a, a real art in focusing on what you own and focusing on your investments. You know, I've gone through periods where I got really lax with my maintenance due diligence on positions. And, you know, that cost me a lot of money. You know, I, I used this analogy before, but, you know, and we used it earlier in this podcast about three-year-old children. You know, you, you can't leave them alone in your house alone or else they're going to burn your house down. You, know, you need to watch them. Um, but on the other extreme is focusing on your positions too much. Focusing on that, focusing on that minutia of information we talked about before can be really harmful, too. It's like when you're staring at your positions and the stock prices constantly. You know, um, it's like you're staring at a dude hitting on your wife or something like that. You know, just angrily. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that is, that isn't healthy either. You know, you need to focus on the things that are important. Those business levers, those tailwinds. You know, execution. You know, don't micromanage every little thing about what you own. You know, focus on the big things. You know, it's like, uh, do you know what? Uh, uh, what's the name of those pictures or puzzles? Uh, auto stereogram. You know what those are? Mm-mm. It's, you know, those pictures or illusions that people have up on the wall that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, 
and you have to you you have to stare at the whole picture. You can't just stare at a specific area or corner. And and really to see the illusion, you kind of have to stare at the entire picture with unfocused eyes. Um, and I feel like investing can be successful. Investing can be a little bit like that. You kind of have to look at the whole picture. You can't really focus too much on the intricate little details, kind of stare at it with unfocused eyes, you know, a little bit. Well, would, and so you can see the whole picture. Well, would you say that's only after you've done your due diligence and maybe exactly. even take it, yeah. then, then like, okay, all right, I got into the weeds. Yeah, I'm talking about ma- maintenance due diligence. Yes, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so those are kind of two big mistakes. I'm trying to think of any more. Um, I think probably another area where I've made a lot of mistakes is just my expectations. Uh, with almost, I think, all of our positions as investors, we have too high of expectations going into it. You know, expectations for the growth rate, expectations for the timing of things to occur, the catalysts, and expectations probably with the linearity of execution mm. from the management teams themselves. You know, so I think it's important for the models that we create to be very conservative. Um, this way you can give your positions enough wiggle, wiggle room to breathe a little bit. You know, allow for a little disappointment. Allow them to exceed your expectations. And so I think expect, expectations is another area where I've made mistakes, where I've gone into things pretty consistently with expectations that are too high. And it's just you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything. Maybe maybe one other area is, you know, the, the, the bad thing about investing in mistakes is mistakes tend to compound other mistakes. So it's sort of like the the great thing about compounding capital is the compounding effect of that capital, but you can compound mistakes as well. And, you know, oftentimes when you have lost money, you get really, really impatient and you want to make back that money twice as quick Mm -hmm. and or compound those past errors. And so it's important to always kind of slow down um, after a big win or a big loss. And, you know, kind of getting back. I know for me in the past, you know, I've just had to slow down and be like, okay, do I even if I was down 40% in something, is this something where I believe I can double my money in three years, getting back to that point? You know, I don't need to make back 500% in the next six months. Right. You know, can I, is this something that still fits that longer term lens? Got it. So that's probably enough. That's probably the, another big area where I've made mistakes in the past. So I don't know if that's helpful or not. Oh, definitely. I mean, well, it, the, especially speaking to the last mistake that you made, I feel like that's been like my number one of like, oh, especially on my losers where, you know, if I lost, I'm like, all right. I, just either actually, it's it's a combination of that one with the uh, the cost averaging down of just like oh I still believe in this I'm put more in you know oh I love it now it's cheaper actually that that was one of the things I wanted to follow up on in terms of your mistakes because you hear that all the time I've done you know number of in, interviews with people where they're like hey if you loved it at two dollars you're gonna love it at you know a dollar fifty or or a buck you know and especially if nothing's changed you know so for you especially when maybe there might be a downturn and usually everyone always says that, you know, most people tend to sell off their, their more riskier investments and yet nothing's really changed to the underlying business. You know, at what point, how, how do you balance that? If, if that makes sense, I can re-ask that question if that didn't make sense. No, no, I, I think, I, I think I know what you're getting at because, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not saying buying a stock lower is a, an awful thing to do. No, no, I, I know. I, yeah. I, I figured like, you know, there's, there's still that balance though of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, not always having that same reaction maybe where, uh, if it goes down there versus when it goes down, uh, when nothing really happened in the business, it was more of an an overall market change versus something, a a material change in the company. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if a business, and so the difference between focusing on the stock versus the business, if the right. business is performing and doing well, and you're just having a negative market reaction that might be even outside the company's control, it's a market type downturn. Yeah, obviously those are times to add to acquisition. You know, it's when you're, it's when you get stuck trying to fool yourself into thinking that, okay, the, the catalyst is another three months off. It's another three months off. You know, it's another three months off. And you keep on just adding more into it as it drops. You know, it's a, just pay attention to the business. You know, make sure you're investing in things that are executing. You know, that's that's the main thing. And focus on the business, not the stock. Mm -hmm. Hey, another question I have too is, you know, you mentioned earlier how you've, you know, you're already very concentrated, but you've diversified from, you know, your three to five to now your eight to 10. And some of the new ideas that you've brought into the portfolio are these, you know, story stocks, stocks and, and uh, storks, stocks and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and GARP names, you know, and that tends to usually be uh, associated with, especially in micro caps, you know, your junior mining, your, your, your healthcare kind of stuff, biotech, pre-revenue type stuff, you know, and one thing that we've covered a lot too on the podcast and in other interviews I've done is this idea of, you know, wanting to stay within your circle of competence, you know, for you, I mean, at what point do you become confident that your competence can ultimately yield some positive results on some of these names? Right. Well, I mean, it, getting back on the story stock thing, I don't want to say that, I don't want to say that I'm uh, investing a lot of. Uh, <laughs> there's plenty of story stocks out there, as you and I both believe. But maybe maybe what would be helpful, I'll, I'll kind of divide it up, kind of how the strategy looks like today. I, I divide things up into three buckets, mm -hmm. and the first bucket is sort of good to great businesses, and these are businesses I think are unique, that are special, um, that can grow, reinvest their capital back into the business. They don't need to raise capital. And, you know, you can find these special businesses in microcap, you know, that dominate these niche areas that are expanding. And that predominantly makes up that first bucket. The second bucket is more of a turnaround bucket. It looks a lot like deep value or value when you look at them. And, and, and you're trying to find these sort of deep value type situations that can potentially turn into a growth company again. And usually you can kind of pinpoint when a new management team comes in, starts selling off non-core assets, focuses on an area that they do have a competitive advantage in. And you can just make a lot of good money just investing things like that. If you can get that, that correct situation that goes from a deep value price to a growth price, you know, something that trades on a ratio to its balance sheet to a multiple to its earnings. And you can make multiples in your money if you find those types of situations. So that's the second bucket. The third bucket is sort of the rocket ship bucket, sort of the story stock bucket. Uh, sort of those things that you think could have 20, 30 X potential in a few years. And as you know, Bobby, being in this ecosystem, every company thinks they have that potential, Sure. but a lot of them have, are also zeros, you know, if, if you're wrong at all, and I'm not interested in having zeros. What I'm mainly talking about with, with the story stock or the rocket ship bucket is trying to find those companies that have a legacy business or a core asset that also has some things that they're working on that could provide some exponential upside there. And hopefully you're buying that stock close to that underlying floor of value to where you're not risking that much, you know, so you might be willing to risk 30, 40% of the downside, you know, if you're wrong, mm -hmm. you know, for that upside. But, you know, I just didn't want people to think that I'm just out there buying, you know, story stock. Like you said. So there's a, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a formula to it. So, and I also wanted to give you a little bit more feedback on how kind of how I view the portfolio construction. It's kind of in those three buckets. And a lot of times the, the rocket ship bucket, their position size smaller than the other ones as well. But all it takes is kind of one out of three or one out of four to sort of take the whole portfolio with it. Hey, as you said on, I think it was on Twitter and on LinkedIn, you know, uh, it only takes one to make your career. So, yeah. you know, 
whether it's in one or maybe has attributes in multiple buckets, it only takes one. Yes. Yeah. Yep. No, exactly. And I'm, I'm sitting here because, you know, I had a few of those early in my career that allowed me to compound at a higher rate. And, you know, it's, um, but it's, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to give you some feedback just on those four, three areas. There's three buckets that I currently invest in. Gotcha. And by the way, you know, we've already beat our time on the first interview. So I think we're, we're both evolving in the sense that I think we have more <laughs> knowledge to continue to give. So let's keep going. All right. Sure. <laughs> so my, my next question is, and this is a fun one is, you know, again, you've been doing this a while. You've actually hosted a few conferences as well. You know, what would you say is your favorite question that you get that you either ask investors and also that's been asked of you? I think, I think my favorite questions to ask, and there's a few of them. I love to ask an investor what they're buying at the current price. You know, cause a lot of times if you ask an investor what they like most, it's going to be the thing they're up the most in. And so I, I kind of want to know what they're buying, you know, at the current price. Um, I also like to ask them what they're selling or what they've sold. Like what's the last stock you sold in the portfolio? Um, cause I think that it's, you can always, you can learn some interesting things there with that one as well. Uh, I like asking people when, it, when I'm talking to an investor, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Cause I think we all as investors have holes, you know, areas that we're better at and, or, you know, not good at. I think it's important to be self-aware of what those areas are so you can fill those voids. And I'm always interested in what people think that their, you know, their strengths and weaknesses are. And maybe the last one kind of hitting back on maybe some of the areas that we talked about in this podcast is, you know, what, how has your investing evolved over the last five years? You know, I think it's important for people to not be investing the same way they did five years ago. You know, it doesn't mean they have to be investing totally different. It just means they, what, what areas on the fringes have you tweaked, you know, that, that, you know, you're doing differently, or maybe some areas that you completely changed your mind on. I think that's also uh, interesting to know when you're talking to an investor. So it's kind of maybe those three or four questions. What about what about a, your favorite question, or maybe how about favorite and and silliest question that you've you've been asked now over the years? I mean, you're you're whether you like it or not, you're you're viewed as a thought leader in the space now. So you know, I, I'm sure you've gotten all sorts of interesting, weird questions and comments. I don't know if it's been weird. Um... Other, other than what you own, I'm sure that that one is probably yeah, 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 the number yeah. one. Um, I, I probably my, one of my favorite questions is a little bit deeper than that. It's more, of, you know, where what what what's been a point in your life that you've felt the most vulnerable? Mm. You know, um, you know that kind of hits on deeper than just investing. Of course. Um, you know, I think I just asked Toby that in the interview I did with him because I was curious, you know, where, where, where was a, a, po a point in your life where you were close to a breaking point, you know, and how did you get through it? I think that's something, uh, an area that people can learn from, you know, overall. So I think that's, that's a thoughtful question that, that I like to ask people, get to know them a little bit better too. Cool. Yeah. I, I'd like to, I'd like to think I've asked a, a couple of good questions to you over the years. I, I, you know, so, listen, I, I know you sometimes get those random emails from me like, dude, what do you think of this idea? You know, so I, <laughs> I, I, I hope you, you, you'll continue to indulge me in some of those. Uh... <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> and for those who are listening, I just put my hands in the air of, of uh, you know, just uh, the, the nut, my nutty ideas. But anyways, I digress. So I mentioned earlier, you've now hosted a few of these microcap leadership summits. I, I think I've been to three and out three out of the four 
Yeah, I think three out of four of them, the one, the ones in Chicago. There was also the famous Detroit one, of course. I missed that one, but it's okay. Um, you know, let's talk about the summit. How did it go this year? You know, what what were some of the feedback that you got? Yeah, I, I thought the summit went went really well. Uh, the nice thing about having it at the same location, as you know, with your event, Bobby, is you just, it just gets easier if you have it at the same location because you know where the breaking points could be. You know, if something goes wrong. But no, I thought this year it went really well. We had a great lineup of speakers. Oh yeah, uh, and you know I was really excited to hear what they had to say and and to learn from them. And I think everybody enjoyed those speakers as well. One of the probably the area of the event that I like the most is trying to find the best speakers I could find. You know, for that day one, um, and really trying to find folks that could add value to the investors sitting there, and also people that have a wider audience beyond just microcap as well. Because I think it's important to bring quality investors into the microcap arena. So if we can continue to attract really good thought leaders to come speak at our event. It brings people from all over the world to it that and introduce them to microcap investing. And so that's what. I kind of that's sort of what gets me going, and that's the, that's what gets me excited about the event every year. And I'm excited about the speakers we have for next year's event, which we'll be announcing probably mid-November registration. So that's good. <laughs> Damn! Ah, oh, we're just before we're recording this on Friday, November eighth. Ah, oh, are we going to be breaking news next week? Oh. Yeah. Damn. I think people will be excited about the speaker lineup we have for uh, the summit 2020. So. <laughs> Oh, I and yeah. I and I appreciate you coming out, Bobby. Too. One of the things that uh, Bobby is a workhorse at every event because he's forced to work and do all these interviews. And the one thing with Bobby coming out with our event, I said, Bobby, I don't want you interviewing anybody. I want you to enjoy the event, to sit there as a participant and actually enjoy something for once. And uh, I'm glad you're able to participate in ours as a as an investor in the audience as well. I I can't tell you how appreciative I am, but I will say we broke that rule this year. I did do one interview at the the event, but it was an That's awesome. That's right, you did with oh, Yeah. That, yeah. But that was that was so awesome. I mean, he was he was pretty amazing. His story is incredible. Um and probably one of the most humble people uh, ever. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He really is. <laughs> so you know, one one of the things that that stood out to me as you said I actually got to sit and, and enjoy and, and and listen to a lot of the presentations and and all, all these uh, speakers do their thing. You know, I just, some of my highlights was uh, Morgan Housel's discussion of risk. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really incredible. Um, Sarab's uh, thoughts on short-termism, culture, and the importance of culture and activism. You know, I think mm-hmm. uh, the, I love that, the coining of the phrase, a uh, friendly of you know, that, that's, yes. yeah. I just, that was so good. <laughs> I, just so good. You know, uh, we might discuss it in a second, but I digress. Uh, you know, and then of course Jim O'Shaughnessy just talking about you know discussing microcasts with colleagues and and really just understanding human nature, you know, and how mm-hmm. nothing's really, you know, his main thesis is really nothing's changed in terms of our human nature over the years. It's just a matter of uh, being aware of it and then making sure that you take actions based on that. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of what you said on this podcast today is, you know, the difficulty in staying objective with positions, you know, so those, those are some mm-hmm. of my highlights from the, from. I, I remember Morgan during the interview at the summit, and I never knew this about him. And I've talked to him many times. It was about his experience when he was on the ski slope, you know, because he was an active skier and where he and a friend, I guess they were, they were off the main trails and he and a friend went one way and his other two friends went the other way. And those two friends got killed in an avalanche, yeah. you know, just minutes later. 
you know, and so I think that was that was a pretty impactful story that he that he shared. And and also I think one of his points was, you know, it's probably why he looks at risk differently, you know, where he's not uh, he's a rather risk averse person because of that experience earlier in his life. And I thought that was a really good story that he shared with us. Yeah, no, that's that's I, I wrote down the quote that he actually said it, and it was basically something along the lines of that. You know, you really can understand each per each person has a different level of risk based on their own personal experience, you know, whether it's investing, actual personal stuff, um, you know, that, so it's really difficult to kind of paint it with a broad stroke of like, you know, how do you calculate risk? Because it's very personalized. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, so I love that. I can't wait for 2020. Do we have dates yet? Uh, it's gonna be, I think September 24th, 25th. Okay. Of 2020. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Breaking news there. September 24th, yeah, 25th, it 2020. Is. Um, I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One more, one more question I had for you. Too, or, well, I have two more questions, but this one's also a fun one. You know, I, I'd say a lot of people, you know, they follow you on Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, you put out some pretty amazing quotes, you know, uh, one, first part one, where do, where do these quotes come from? You know, I, I mean, I'm assuming from your own brain, of course, you know, uh, but secondly, if you had to compare yourself to one philosopher, non-financial, in the history of time, who would it be? So when it comes to Twitter, it's for some reasons I just connect with it. I like taking big, complex things and distilling it down to 280 characters. It used to be 140 characters back in the day, way back in the day. I'm way sure you remember those days. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I find it to be very useful in my writing mm -hmm. um, because I can distill a thought down people connect with it. And a lot of times that becomes a staging point to, to write an article uh, because I see it connects with people. And it's something that usually if it connects with, with people, it's something that I should think about a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll write a little bit of a longer form piece on it. And so it's been really good for my, my writing as well. Um, and, you know, I think, it, yeah, I just enjoy it. You know, I did, I try to not let it, Kind of take over you know i don't spend too believe it or not i don't spend too much time thinking about what i'm gonna like i need to put out a tweet right now you know it's more of you know my investing comes first and when i'm just thinking about investing i, I jot down something and tweet it out you know i don't schedule my tweets in advance you know in the start of every day you know what i mean it's like i don't do it like that um it's like, just uh, like like these are not your yeah. these are not your mantras yeah. for the day this just happens right, to be exactly. your thing. yeah 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 these aren't scheduled and just kind of random out there and, and i'm happy that people connect with it and people find value out of it um, i have to ask because i do that and and i think you know I, i've talked to some other investors you know who also follow you and we're all just like where the hell does he come up with this stuff you know like yeah it, it's all so good we all connect with it so that's why i was like all right you know i, I had to ask yeah and on your second question i have no idea what oh, the philosopher <laughs> what, who, who would you think I mean, it would be somebody more postmodern, post I would say, because mm -hmm. you're very much not about, you know, getting the 100% perfection because you also acknowledge that that's impossible. So mm -hmm. I, I'd say you'd probably go along the line. I mean, of the postmodern philosophers I've read, you know, close to that. I don't want to say a name because I haven't read all of his stuff, but just from what I've read, <laughs> you know, on the, his idea of that, you know, the your goal in life is to it's really all about the journey, not so much the end, the end game, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, so I won't name his name, but it, it's it was uh, that that's more or less. Well, I, 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 and I think to. investing kind of reflects back well back into life. It's about adapting. You know, it's about adapting to change, about adapting to your environment. You know, you know, and I think that's important with with investing as well. You know, there's investing isn't a game of batting average. I'm never going to be right ten out of ten. I'm probably not going to be right eight out of ten. You know, I can be right even four out of ten times and still do very very well if you kind of get rid of the things that aren't working in the portfolio and reestablish new things in there. You know, and just letting the things that are working in your life continue to work or investing your you know things that are working in the portfolio continue to work as well. Yeah. No, that's and and you know in your most recent article about chasing, you know, like what for, I emailed you about this too, is, you know, my reflection on that for me was, you know, not so much what's chasing me, but what I'm chasing, you know, like, cause at first I kept thinking to myself, like, what is, what are the things that are chasing me? Like, you know, think going from all your, my insecurities to this, that, the other thing, like what's chasing. But I realized, no, I don't think that was the point, at least for me, for that article, it was really, well, what am I, what am I going after? And, and, becoming more aware of how getting to that is the fun and that's that yes. that's the living you know and that yeah that, that was what i took away from that one well and the and the older you get the less it becomes about you you know more becomes about you know your family you know just wanting to to do well in this world you know and be a good influence on people around you so yeah, yeah no I'll definitely, I'm, glad, I'm glad you connected with it yeah no that was i was I, I really enjoyed that one okay my last question you know and 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 what what would you say are are some existential threats to the the microcap universe? You know, both for you as a full time investor and also just the the our arena in general. I would say an existential threat is what's been occurring in the U.S. Mm-hmm. microcap arena for years. You know, which is just getting harder and harder for people to for companies to raise capital as a U.S. microcap and go public, and it's getting harder for investors to to also participate in fundings for small microcap companies because not many of the brokerage accounts or brokerages out there even accept stock certificates anymore of small microcap companies. Um, and so that, again, just freezes up the capital markets for small microcaps. Mm-hmm. And also the brokers themselves, I mean, a lot of them won't even allow you to purchase, you know, a penny stock anymore. And so you would think that the pendulum has swung far enough in one direction, and I'm hoping it starts swinging back the other way again. Um, and I think it's also another reason why it's becoming more and more important for a microcap investor to have more of a worldwide view, you know, to not be stuck in your own geography or location. I mean, luckily we can invest in Canada, we can invest in the UK. I mean, you know, open up an interactive broker's account and buy a security in any market in the world, you know, and so you have that capability. And so you have to be able to adapt, kind of what we were talking about before, and, and move into some geographies that um, that you, these companies can still raise capital. They're still good with companies going public, and you have to be able to move into those areas. So I think that would probably the way the U.S. is right now is pretty bad. It mm-hmm. seems like it's still getting, getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just hope that changes. Okay. All right. One more question, I promise. This is the last one. So <laughs> what would you say since July 2015 has been your biggest – learning experience, you know, from, from, uh, an investment, not, not personally, but just from, from an investing experience, what, what would you say you've learned the most from, you don't have to name the name. Um, I think, I think we hit on it before just having a shorter leash, 
Mm-hmm. You know, there there was an investment of mine that was a rather large holding that, you know, I just held on and held on. It was four or five years where, you know, the stock really went nowhere. I didn't really lose much money. And in fact, I think I still made a little bit because I bought it fairly early. But, you know, it's it's hard to sit on a position that goes nowhere for five years, especially in one of the biggest bull markets in history, yeah. you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it really, you know, came back to, you know, I got probably got caught too much in the details and the weeds and got a little bit too close to the situation where if I just took a step away and, and saw it for what the situation was, I should have probably exited a few years prior, you know, moved on to something else. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's probably the biggest, biggest area in the last five years I've evolved. Gotcha. All right, Ian, we're at that point. Uh, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Microcap Club, and, and follow you on social media? So you can find out about Microcap Club at microcapclub.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at, at Ian Castle is my Twitter handle. Um, you can find Microcap Club on Twitter as well, uh, or you can just reach out to me through the websites. Uh, I try to get back to people if they email me. So thanks for having me on, Bobby. Oh, absolutely. One more, one more plug for, for IFCM. Yes, and uh, Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management up and running. Um, just if.capital is the website. Got it. All right. Ian, thank you as always, man. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Bobby. You're welcome. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Ian, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and Spotify and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast for our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.